This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Ravi Kumar, president of Infosys, and we are speaking with him about how the emerging world of technology will shape the jobs of the future. Uh, Ravi, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. Thanks, Mukul, for the opportunity. So I want to talk, start by talking about a recent panel uh, at the Milken uh, uh, conference that, uh, where, where you were a participant. And one of the things that you said uh, on that panel is that 75 million old jobs will go away by 2022, and 135 million new jobs will be created because of new technologies. So the two questions I have are, how will the jobs of the future be different than the jobs that are being eliminated? And what are the main factors that are driving this change? Thank you so much, Mukul. That's a, that's a great question, actually. In fact, every large uh, enterprise and every large you know, government ecosystem is thinking about this fact about automation, AI, machine learning, and new age digital technologies, taking away jobs of the past and creating jobs of the future. That's happened in most tech revolutions in the past, but this, this to me is one of the biggest, and it's a tectonic shift in the way businesses and operating models are, uh, have evolved in the last few years. Um, I would think there will be fundamentally two big shifts. The first being a lot of uh, repetitive tasks are going to be automated with machines and AI software uh, in your workspace. So when that happens, the cognitive non-repetitive tasks will be done by humans. So that's one big shift. So humans have to start uh, looking at it as a way to amplify their jobs, using machines to amplify their jobs. Um, and the shift from repetitive to non-repetitive tasks, so that's a big shift. The second, I would say, and this is one of my favorites, um, institutions, enterprises will move from uh, a people workplace to a people plus machine workplace. And if I extend the thought, they will move from people plus gig plus machines. Uh, machines will do the problem solving. The gig, the gig economy, which will give you variability of your workforce, uh, agility of your workforce and scale, uh, and the private human capital you have, as I call it, uh, you know, I kind of make this distinction of public and private human capital, will uh, switch to creative jobs or problem finding. So repetitive tasks to non-repetitive, and the second is uh, moving from uh, problem solving to problem finding or more creative jobs. So humans will then, uh, you know, switch to uh, transition to creative jobs. So these are the two big shifts in the way work packets and in workplaces would be. Sure. So I'd like to drill a little deeper into into this issue, but before we, we do that, what are some of the opportunities and some of the challenges in implementing this vision that you just described? You know, the, the fundamental shift on this is, um, is lifelong learning. You know, all of us have moved from, you know, at least when I grew up, um, we, we had a linear equation of uh, studies to work. Um, and I call that linear straight line. 
and we're going to move to a continuum of lifelong learning, which essentially means you have to be a lifelong learner and you have to learn to learn and learn to unlearn and learn to learn. Uh, that switch is a big switch for individuals to have a culture of being on that learning curve for all their lives. So that's a, that's a big switch in the way you see, uh, see things. The second aspect is, um, and we, we kind of discussed in uh, one of our previous conversations, which is about curiosity or problem finding. Uh, lines between industries have blurred. Uh, as lines between industries have blurred, uh, you have to start thinking in a much cross-functional way. Uh, there isn't a discipline um, or a disciplinary approach to uh, work anymore. Um, and that will, uh, that will make disciplines beyond uh, core engineering and STEM, which was used for core technologies, to diverse into uh, a much cognitive diverse pool. Uh, and I think in the digital age, um, applying technologies to businesses will be a much bigger virtue than the technology itself. So on one side of the spectrum, you need deep programmers. On the other side of the spectrum, you need individuals who can contextualize it to businesses and apply it, which means they need to be, uh, they need to be uh, people who can actually find problems, people who can actually apply to businesses. So you need a much diverse workforce uh, coming from liberal arts, coming from design, coming from humanity, coming from anthropology and disciplines of that kind. That's a big shift from the previous era where uh, the tech revolution kind of uh, got embraced with technologists and technologists actually created the divide. Yeah. And this is an opportunity to actually bridge that divide. It's interesting. I mean, uh, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I wonder, I mean, given your role at Infosys, uh, you probably see a lot of different companies in different industries across the world. Uh, based on your perspective, which industries do you think are best prepared for this shift? And which countries are best prepared to for, for, for these changes in the future of jobs? So Mukul, you know, that's a, uh, that's a very um, uh, intriguing question, I would say. Um, you know, industries which had a legacy of uh, adoption of core technologies or traditional technologies, counterintuitively have a much difficult task of repurposing themselves because they have a legacy to deal with. So that's one aspect of uh, reflecting which industry will play a role, uh, which essentially means you could leapfrog multiple eras if you're an industry which, not, which did not adapt to uh, traditional technologies yeah. and be ahead of the curve. You have that opportunity now if you have not done it in the previous era. The second way of seeing this is industry lines are blurring. You know, every time I meet a CXO of an of a enterprise, they're not worried about the peers. Yeah. They're worried about uh, what other industries are doing because they don't know who their competition is. Yeah. You know, if I meet a bank, a, C a CXO of a bank, most times I get to hear, tell us what you're doing with retail clients. Right. We want to know about them. Um, and the same with all other industries. So industry lines are blurring. So you really don't know where to actually... Uh, how to measure, you know, what you want to benchmark yourself with. Right. So that's one other aspect of seeing this. If I go back to societies or countries, um, countries in the Asia-Pacific, the emerging ones like India, China, which did not have 
legacy systems and legacy processes to deal with are leapfrogging and creating digital platforms uh, which are significantly superior to uh, some of the developed nations. And that's because the developed nations have to deal with a legacy. And when they have to deal with a legacy, they have to repurpose financial capital to fund the new. And they have to repurpose human capital to fund the new. Uh, while uh, the emerging economies have this, if they have the vision, they have the opportunity to leapfrog into a completely new digital paradigm uh, without even bothering what the legacy is all about. So I kind of have, uh, and that's why I said it's very intriguing, who is going to win, win yeah. the race. Yeah. If I look at China, um, which traditionally did labor arbitrage to create a massive manufacturing ecosystem, uh, today is uh, in an in a inflection point at a crossroads where uh, automation can take away that leverage mm. of labor arbitrage because the percentage of labor percentage of labor in a, in a manufacturing shop floor is going down and it could reshore manufacturing back to the developed nations right. uh, if they don't embrace automation uh, in a big way right. so I would think this is uh, this is a very complicated uh, you know paradox yeah. of sorts right. uh, for economies to deal with it Right. No, I think that what you're saying is fascinating because uh, if you take a country like China, do you see this model that you described earlier of uh, people plus machines plus gig? Uh, do you see that playing out in, the, in it, China? And, and how is it differ, different from the way it plays out, say, in a place like the U.S.? So it does. You know, uh, in fact, uh, I actually think if you look at uh, density of robots on a shop floor, China doesn't rank number one. Um, Korea ranks, uh, ranks much higher than them. Uh, Taiwan ranks higher than them. Uh, so this is for the manufacturing space. This is the manufacturing space. Germany is doing pretty well. Uh, in fact, a lot of, a lot of uh, manufacturing is getting reshored back. So China really has to scale up on it, and they have to cannibalize their own selves to, to get there. And that's the point I was making earlier. Um, being an incumbent is not necessarily a competitive advantage in, in an era where you can leapfrog right. and create necessarily a completely different operating model. Right, right. No, I think that, that, that's true. Uh, uh, moving slightly away from manufacturing into a service sector, say like banking and insurance, uh, as you look to the future of work in, these, in, in, a, in a sector like banking and financial services, what kind of jobs do you think are likely to go away and what kind of new jobs will come into being as a result of these technology shifts that are going on? Yeah, uh, you know, um, going to a bank to do a transaction, the traditional way of doing it uh, is going to switch to uh, the bank coming to your home and the bank coming to your app. Right. Um, and that's, that's happened uh, in, in literally in every country in the world. And in fact, in the emerging markets, uh, the amount of transactions you can do uh, do uh, online uh, and do in a digital way and the digital bank is much much superior to uh, doing it you know if, if you if you go to a developed nations because they just leapfrogged uh, you know multiple eras to get there so uh, that's taken the whole banking revolution into a very different paradigm uh, if you go to uh, underdeveloped nations, the unbanked, yeah. uh, which is a significant population in, uh, in uh, uh, underdeveloped nations, are getting access to a bank through the mobile phone. Yeah. Um, you know, all of Africa does banking on mobile phone. Right. And mobile service providers are becoming banks mm -hmm. 
for, uh, for those citizens. So banking has taken a very different um, uh, paradigm in, in underdeveloped nations where you can literally bank, uh, you know, you can bank the unbanked by, uh, by a very different industry, industry paradigm. Uh, and the and and the lines between these industries are blurring because everybody has a chance to be a bank of the future right. for those uh, uh, for those um, uh, for those nations. So, how will jobs of the future need to balance between technical skills on the one hand and emotional and social skills on the other hand? And also, what are some of the implications for blue collar and white collar work that you see coming down the road? That's a fascinating question, Mukul. Um, you know. As much as technologies of the future are going to change the paradigm of work, workforces, and workplaces as well, um, on one side, you need deep programming skills to build these technologies. Uh, I think the bigger virtue is to apply these technologies to businesses, apply these technologies to our personal lives and our professional lives and the societies we live in. And that embrace will need an emotional quotient, uh, an empathy quotient, uh, to make technology live our lives better. Finally, that's what technology is all about. It has to make uh, lives better. And for that to happen, my sense is we're going to move not just having deep programming skills with STEM, STEM talent, but we're going to have uh, a inclusion of liberal arts, an inclusion of design, an inclusion of humanities, inclusion of uh, um, disciplines which are completely uh, away from the STEM, uh, you know, the STEM equivalent, if I may. And that never happened in the tech space when the tech revolution happened. It is going to happen in the digital age uh, when, these, um, when these technologies are going to be embraced across industries. And it will give you the emotional and the uh, and the and the human aspect right. of of technology. So I think liberal arts design and disciplines of this kind will play a much bigger virtue. Uh, I also believe that um, we're going to move from T skills to Z skills, and this is my you know my way of hmm. articulating it. T skills are the skills where you specialize in an area, but you kind of have a broad embrace on on uh, things around you, and that's how you know educational ecosystems are built. We're going to move to Z skills, which means you learn, unlearn, and learn uh, on a constant basis. And there isn't a discipline, so I al almost call it anti-disciplinary approach to uh, education. Um, so you're spot on. You know, um, the the technology is is important, but uh, a bigger virtue is to apply them in a human, in a in a in an empathetic way to businesses. So that's that's the future. Right. Uh, as you think about the future of work, and I know you think a lot about it, uh, what are some of the biggest risks that keep you up at night? Yeah. And what do you hear from the people you talk to in different companies and different industries? What are they most worried about? What can be done about those risks to, uh, to, yeah. to, so that everyone can sleep better at night? Yeah. I think you're, you know, this is a follow-up question, but you, you teed it up before by asking the blue collar and white collar. It's kind of in the same space zone. You know, Across the world, everybody now recognizes reskilling is very important. Yeah. Repurposing talent is very important. But everybody is talking about reskilling white collar jobs. What happens to blue collar jobs? What happens to a factory worker? What happens to a technician? What happens to a bartender? 
um, there was this distinctive difference between blue and white collar jobs and how you skill and reskill in the past. But the embrace of digital is so overarching and so pervasive that uh, we need to start thinking about blue collar jobs. And I think you know that line will blur and you're going to have new collar jobs. Very little infrastructure has been established uh, for blue collar jobs or jobs of the future. Uh, so that's a big risk, I, I, I believe, and that's, a, that's an uphill task uh, because they're not ready to get rescaled and you are almost uh, pushing them to rescale. In fact, our own initiative on community colleges is a phenomenal example of how we're trying to do that. Right. The second aspect, Mukul, I don't know whether you've thought about it, uh, for this reskilling task, which is such a, uh, such a big uh, mission, governments, academic institutions and enterprises have to come together yeah. uh, uh, to, uh, to take the owners. You know, who, who owns it? Is it the employee or the enterprise or the government or the academic institutions? Who owns it? But you know, governments are wired in a very different way. Governments are wired for the first 15 to 20 years of, their, uh, of citizens' lives and they're wired for the last 20 years of citizens' lives. But all the change happens in the middle. Right. And uh, all the reskilling is need, needed in the middle. And how do governments re-architect their, their own infrastructure to, uh, to deal with the middle? Uh, I think is a big risk uh, we all foresee. Uh, and how do the educational ecosystems uh, gear up to create lifelong learners? I think these are the three things I would say uh, I would lose sleep on. Uh, and how is and Infosys, what is Infosys doing to try to mitigate some of these risks? Are so, you, you know, in, in our own small way, uh, we are making impact on all these three areas. Um, we have a learning platform called Wingspan, which has been, uh, uh, which is a platform for enterprises to create learning for their employees. This is our own customers, not just our employees. And that is to create an embrace of learning uh, across the enterprise, including blue collar jobs. Uh, in the uh, in the aspect around um, uh, around uh, working with governments, we are very actively pursuing with governments. In fact, what we are hiring from schools in the U.S. with our six centers is a uh, is a partnership with local state governments mm. and academic institutions to create future talent talent which doesn't exist in the market. Right. And to create lifelong learners, we have the Infosys Foundation in the United States, which is in the top three foundations for computer science education in K-12 schools. And our endeavor is to teach teachers so that they're equipped enough to teach students and teach students. Uh, and we're doing this at massive scale. Uh, um, and uh, I think that's in a small way our contribution to um, this, um, I would say, challenges and opportunities of the future. Let me end with one last question. Let's imagine that among the people who are listening to this conversation, there are some young people who are just about to graduate from college and enter the workforce for the first time. What advice would you give them about things that they can do today so that they can have a meaningful career over the next 30 to 40 years? You know, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. You know, I actually think um, being a lifelong learner is probably the most important aspect of this. Um, and because ac academic institutions, the way they're wired, you finish higher studies, you get to work, and you think you're done with learning. Um, I think you need to get back into the mind frame of being a lifelong learner, which essentially means what you learn today 
will will get obsolete in in literally in a few uh, few months or if, or or less than a year and you should you should be prepared to challenge this status quo and um, and create your own uh, you know your own career path around it um, and that i think is the only way you could be on this constant learning journey uh, i would say that's the that's the era we are all entering into and if they want to stay relevant uh, they have to be paranoid about uh, the change around them and uh, accordingly react uh, andy grove uh, former ceo of uh, intel used to say only the paranoid survive uh, you know that that might be a good mindset you know for, for, for the future absolutely ravi thank you so much for speaking with knowledge at wharton thank you mukul for this opportunity thank you so much for more insight from knowledge at wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu